Welcome to this episode of the RF Industries Icons podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today I'm talking with Zoya Popovic, Distinguished Professor at University of Colorado Boulder and Lockheed Martin Endowed Chair in RF Engineering. She's an IEEE Fellow and very active in the IEEE Microwave Society, holding many positions on the IMS 2022 Committee as the event takes place in Denver this year. Welcome to the podcast, Zoya. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Patrick. This episode is sponsored by BAE Systems. BAE Systems pushes the limits of possibility every day. Their technology spans across every domain, from the seas to the far reaches of space. BAE provides customers a critical edge, and their mission inspires employees to change the world. Learn more at BAEsystems.com. So you uh, grew up in Serbia and received an undergraduate degree from University of Belgrade, where your father taught electromagnetics, and he was kind of a well-known expert there, I think. Uh, Did his work have influence on you and your career? Yes, of course. Yes, I went to this really horribly strict school in Belgrade. (laughs) It was was at that time ranked very highly worldwide. This was before the wars, the various wars we had. And my father was well-known, actually, internationally. He held the Hertz Premium, the Booker Award, the Maxwell Prize, and so a number of international awards. And he was also a visiting professor at Virginia Tech. So I actually finished kindergarten and first grade in Blacksburg, Virginia. Oh, wow. And But, but I finished most of my school in Serbia, in Belgrade. And of course, he had an influence on me. But, you know, he worked a lot. My My parents were pretty hands-off parents in the sense that they believed that we should learn everything on our own. And I think that that was, you know, looking back, it was probably the right approach. But there was definitely influence. My, my dad said, you know, if you don't do well in your first year of college, you should just get a job. Not everybody should go to college. And so I panicked completely because he was very strict. And so I not only took all my Uh, exams from the first year, but I also passed a few classes from the second year, just in in case, you know, so I could go to school because I loved school. And so then I told him, look, dad, you know, I think I can stay in school. And he said, oh, I was just really kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You took it to heart and he was just joking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But he had obviously an influence, as did my mother, uh, who she's a linguist, but you know, my my grandmother actually was one of the first women lawyers in Serbia. And so we just grew up with women who had their jobs and were successful and, you know, took care of things. And it seemed like a normal thing to the rest of us. I have two sisters and all three of us are electrical engineers. Great. So you received your PhD from California Institute of Technology. So is it your father being over in Virginia brought you to the U.S., or why did you come to the U.S. after that? No, you know, when we were in the U.S., the when I was, the second time he was on sabbatical in Virginia, he was there twice, um, my parents thought none of us will ever return, and so they rented a car with unlimited mileage for five weeks, and we toured the entire U.S., you know, all the national parks and everything. They said, take a good look, because you may never get back here. <laughs> and- <laughs> So I just remember when we returned the car, the guys couldn't believe how much we'd driven because four, four of us had licenses out of five. And so, um, no, it, my father was not the reason. In fact, my parents were very much opposed to me going to graduate school. At that time, Yugoslavia was still a very normal country, and I had a position at the university, and they didn't think I should go. 
But my grandfather, actually at that time, Professor Chuk, Slobodan Chuk, who is no longer at Caltech, um, he was a professor in power electronics there. And turns out he went to school with my aunt. And so he came to bring a packet to my grandmother and I met him and he said, you know, are you a good student? You should apply to this school where I work. It's called Caltech. I didn't know anything, you know, because <laughs> I knew the West, East Coast better. And so he said, here, I have an application form. Why don't you just fill it out? So that's how that happened. And I got financial aid right away and the TA and my parents said, you, sh- you shouldn't go. And they got upset. Wow. But I took a train to the village to talk to my grandfather. And my grandfather said, you know, I've lived through, I can't remember now, five wars. And there's going to be another war here. Thankfully, I'm not going to live long enough to live this other, to live through this other war. But you need to go. And don't listen to your parents. Just go. And I will give you all I have saved. And he gave me 100 German marks at the time. That was 50 bucks. So I came basically with 50 bucks in my pocket. Because at that time, my monthly salary was $40. It was a whole other planet. You know, you could live on that at at the time. Wow. So you do these things when you're young, you know, and I felt comfortable, you know, I'd lived in the US, I didn't have a language issue, at least, you know, I have an exit, but I didn't have an issue. And so I thought, well, this would be fun, you know, I'll go do a master's in California, see what the West Coast is like. Then the the war, it was clear that there would be a war. And so I stayed for my PhD also because I really loved my advisor, Dave Rutledge. I really wanted to do a PhD with him. I, I still think he's one of the smartest people I know. And uh, that was a great decision, really great decision. So how did things compare to Serbia that time to the U.S. when you came here? Was <laughs> life, life hugely different? Well, school was different for sure. We were trained very classically, strictly. So I had all the theoretical background. I had no issue with that. The thing is, we had year-long classes, and we'd have an exam that would cover the whole year. And nobody nobody quizzed you in the meantime. It was just up to you to learn. And so the percentage of people that passed was very low, because most people procrastinate. And so I came to Caltech, and suddenly, you know, they were on a quarter system to make it even worse. And so... Every week there were 15 homeworks and quizzes and things, and it, you couldn't catch your breath, let alone think about it. <laughs> and, and that was uh, different, but, you know, one gets used to it. Um, in terms of life, you know, surprisingly, it wasn't that different. I mean, I was just studying, so there wasn't that. Ah, there was a difference. <laughs> I have to tell you, because this is funny. So I didn't know much about the Halloween culture in L.A., especially not the Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) That was an unknown thing for me. I grew up in what was called communism, but it was a dictatorship, actually. And um, I had a very humorous friend who was from Oxford, an English young man. Sadly, he's passed away, Howard Stone. And he decided it would be great to play a prank on me, on the clueless, you know, communist. And so they took me to the Rialto Theater in L.A. on Halloween for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) (laughs) And I had no idea what was going on. And there were all these people, cross-dressers. It was not that common at the time, you know. And I thought to myself, my God, the communists were correct. (laughs) They told us all about The Americans are crazy. (laughs) 
<laughs> corrupt capitalist culture and all this decadence. And I always thought that was nonsense and indoctrination, but my God, they were right. <laughs> and then after that, Howard explained why he'd done this to <laughs> And it was very funny. So after you graduated, you became a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. I think you've been there ever since. Uh, how did you decide to go into teaching and what made you pick uh, University of Colorado? Well, you know, I grew up in a family of professors and my mother was also a professor. It, it, she's still alive. So I thought I wanted to be a professor and Dave Rutledge gave me a lot of opportunities to be a TA where I really did have a, a lot of teaching to do because he knew of my interest. And so I thought I could do the job and I cared about students always a lot. And I also didn't have, despite me being a fourth generation dual citizen, my parents didn't bother to do the paperwork for me. So I was still an, an immigrant officially, even though my great grandfather was American and just kept going back and forth. So and, uh, my options were a little bit limited at the time. But I was always interested in it. And I interviewed a few places and just, uh, you know, the University of Colorado just felt like home when I came here and I could see that I would get support. The faculty seemed, you know, just kind and not very political. You can smell politics in a <laughs> university department. Yeah. And I had smelled some at some other places. <laughs> so Anyway, and, and it's a very, Boulder is a very pretty place. And at the time it was not very crowded. Colorado is now quite crowded, but at the time it was quite empty. And I thought oh, this would be a nice place to, you know, settle down and see if I can make a difference. The department had a fairly strong program at the time in numerical electromagnetics. And in fact, some of the codes that we use today routinely have been developed at Colorado. And that was led by David Chang, who had the center that he made the industry and, and DOD center. So they hired me um, more as a first experimentalist, if you wish, and more circuits person as opposed to EM. Casey Gupta was then here. He was alive and he, he was actually extremely supportive of me. So it just felt like a place that would, where I could succeed. And I think I was correct. I'm still here and I, I really like it. And I don't think I've been asked many times to move, but I've been happy where I am. You made the right decision. Good pick. So you've developed uh, many graduate and undergraduate courses in electromagnetics and written a textbook. Uh, what gave you such a passion or interest in electromagnetics versus something else? I really like circuits as well, you know, analog circuits. And if you want to do high frequency circuits or components, you have to know electromagnetics. There's just no option. And I noticed that across the country, and actually, if I may say around the world, some people might get upset, but, but I think that electromagnetics is not taught the right way. Students think it's an extremely difficult theoretical subject, when in fact, all of Maxwell's equations were experimentally determined, except for the one term in Ampere's law, in the Maxwell-Ampere law that Maxwell added. And so the only reason we believe Maxwell's equations is because nobody has yet made an experiment that disproves them microscopically. And so I set out thinking there's no way that students cannot really embrace and love this topic because it's so fundamental to electrical engineering. And so then I started making a bunch of classes and each time I'd make one, I think, oh, I can do it better. Let me do it differently and so on. 
And so one thing led to another. And then Dave Rutledge at Caltech developed a really nice class in um, uh, radio electronics, analog. And so I kind of modified that class to fit our curriculum a little bit. And then, of course, at the graduate level, since I have a lot of graduate students, I had to develop classes where I could all put them all in one room and teach them at the same time. because <laughs> it was most, most efficient. And since that time, we've hired a lot of other faculty and we have a very large program. We have probably about 50 PhD students just in RF and a lot of funding. And so, the, the, you know, the classes keep being developed by my colleagues. And recently I developed a new graduate level electromagnetics class and I love it. I had such a good time with this class, which probably means that the students really suffered. <laughs> but, but anyway, I'd like to think we had a good time. And during COVID, I taught outside in the backyard. They would all bike. And then I had, you know, 20 some chairs at two meters distance and a board on the patio. And so we never really went to online fully. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. But, you know, and then microwave classes, there's so much to learn and not many people teach hardcore microwaves, you know, waveguides and not just microstrip, but waveguides and mimics in three, five semiconductors. And so there's a lot to teach these kids. And if they know this, they're going to get great jobs. So my product are the students, right? Yeah, I know you have a strong student following and I meet them everywhere. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Who knows? Yeah, I hope, I hope it's okay. I hope they're doing Oh, so well. far, so good. It's good comments. No, I, I think you're right, though. I mean, I feel like electromagnetics and RF is kind of viewed as an esoteric science, a uh, very small subset of electrical engineering. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it's appealing to a lot of people because of that. So, you know, I think you're right to bring it into the mainstay that, you know, it's, it's really not that difficult if you understand the basic science. And you'll, you'll be ahead. You know, yes. you'll know more. And the job market for RF engineers is incredible. Oh, I know. I Everywhere I go, companies cannot hire enough RF engineers. They are always looking for them. That's because we're not training enough. I agree. And so you're a leading expert, you know, in my view, in high efficiency amplifier design techniques. Uh, you've done a lot of work there. Uh, how did you come to specialize in that area versus some of the others? You know, I really started in what you might call active antennas, tightly coupled. So I'm interested in nonlinear circuits in general, and, and I like antennas a lot as well. How did I get? I don't know. I mean, you know, amplifiers can use up a lot of power. And so it, it's a good idea to make them efficient. And at the time, a long time ago, I had a student who took power electronics and did soft switching. And we thought, hmm, why don't we try to do that at microwaves? It was a little naive at the time. <laughs> but we managed, so we made some of the first classy microwave amplifiers at a few gigahertz. And then, you know, then I got interested in other ways to do that. Then, of course, that's a very narrow band approach. So you'd like to do something a little more broadband. And then, then you've got a signal coming in and you need to take, you know, suddenly your efficient amp is not efficient anymore. So you have to do something about the signal. And so one thing led to another. Um, but I do do a lot of other RF engineering. You know, I have a big group. I have 20 PhD students right now, so they can't all do amplifiers. <laughs> yeah, so, so speaking of that, you know, what are some of the other projects that you're currently working on? And, you know, what areas do you see advances coming in? So I think that there are a couple of hard, thing in, hard things in microwave engineering. 
and um, I have to say I don't do CMOS, and so I'm only speaking about three, five semiconductors and sort of old-fashioned technology, not silicon. Mainly, I like things that can do really well, like high power or really low noises. <laughs> Silicon doesn't quite do that. It has its own huge benefits, of course, as we all know, but I've decided to go this other route. So um, I think the hard pro problems are like, like we just mentioned, high efficiency for high RF bandwidth and high instantaneous bandwidth with high power. And then the higher in frequency you are, the harder it gets. Um, so that's one area where gallium nitride seems to be really an excellent player. And I work with both Corvo and HRL on their advanced processes and a little bit with Wolfspeed as well. But that's been very rewarding, actually. And then the other hard thing is how do you receive a tiny signal? And it may be in a lot of interference. And so that's the sensitivity difficulty and low noise difficulty of, of RF systems. And so in that area... Um, I have a very exciting set of projects, actually, that's about that's focused on medical applications, even though I know almost no biology whatsoever. Um, but it's about measuring internal body temperature non-invasively and passively by using microwave radiometry. And it's not, you know, it's not a brand new idea, but it's, it hasn't been done actually successfully in a product and it's extremely difficult. And there are some people who have done some very nice work in this area, but not many in the US actually, and um, not kind of all the way, you know? And so I think that this is a very rich area for PhD thesis because there's, you know, low noise circuitry, a good near field electromagnetics with complex tissue parameters with high variability, um, solving an inverse problem because you're receiving power from a whole stack of tissue layers. And then estimation, you know, calibration, and then we're swimming in RF fields, you know, so how do you get rid of the interference? You're receiving signals at the minus 100 dBm level. And, and so clearly you're going to have to deal with interference. So, so it, it, it's uh, the whole group. We're, we're all excited about both our high power efficient, uh, you know, PA projects as well as this one. This last one, we had a patent which came about by one of my students saying, you know, I'd like to try to see how, how this one write a patent. I said, well, go for it, you know, try to write one. <laughs> so we got a patent in this radiometry technology and a gentleman who is a serial entrepreneur, but otherwise has background in EE from MIT and worked for HP, you know, so a double E. He picked out my patent out of the about 100 or 200 patents at CEO, and he made a startup around it. And so now he's helping us get more funding to do fundamental research, and hopefully he'll do some commercialization with it. But that's been really interesting, and my students seem to be excited about it, you know. Yeah, that's very interesting. What's the name of the company? It's called Luminastra, which means the light from the stars, because this gentleman also is an amateur maybe not even amateur, but he's an astronomer. And so he understands that radiometry oh, yeah, yeah. radio astronomy. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Another cool project that I had until recently, and I need to find time to write some more proposals, but I think it's really worth doing, is using microwaves to do pyrolysis. So to do breakdown of mixed trash. So a microwave trash can, basically. Uh, and turn it into, it turns out you can turn mixed waste into usable fuel with surprisingly high efficiency. And um, 
that's been really super interesting. And I, I'm afraid I'll have to use some, learn some chemistry. <laughs> you know, double E's don't like chemistry. And I was one of them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, biology, chemistry, you got it all going. No, it's really biting me. But, um, you know, it's really cool. My, one of my students, Megan Robinson, she got some bread and hot dogs, you know, because we can't do plastic. We don't have a hood and all the required chemical stuff. And she, you know, built some very efficient 70 watt amps and combined them, load modulated them through the waste inside a, you know, cylindrical cavity. And we got some pretty good coal. <laughs> it didn't take that long. <laughs> wow. So I think it's really, really interesting because if you think about it, there's a lot of this plastic stuff that's floating on the oceans. And if you were to incinerate that, first of all, you get a lot of bad gases out. So then you have, which you would anyway, but there are methods that you can turn that into synthetic gas actually. But if you do it with RF, RF likes wet stuff, right? Salty, wet, it'll heat it up and you can get pyrolytic oil. Whereas burning it, it, it's quite difficult if it's wet. Yeah. So I think that there's some really good applications of this, but um, maybe that'll be my next funding endeavor. But uh, to be honest with you, Patrick, I have so many projects right now. I don't know how I would get more, but maybe some of them will finish soon. Need a few more students. <laughs> no, no, that will serve nobody if I get more students. Yeah. <laughs> students take a lot of time. Yes, for sure. You got to... Got to teach them some things. So it takes time. Yeah. They're my kids, my grown-up kids, you know, the ones I can't spank. <laughs> <laughs> so you're also uh, very involved in IEEE activities. You've received many awards in that area. Uh, what are some of the activities that you enjoy the most with the IEEE and why? The technical or technically oriented activities. So right now I'm on the board of the editorial board of the proceedings of the IEEE and I really enjoy that because I get to learn a little bit about other areas of electrical engineering that are completely new to me and uh, you know from real experts so that's been quite rewarding um, for the MTT I've done a lot of work I've been on best paper award you know the MTT microwave prize that's been a very fun committee. You read the best papers in your field. How bad can that be? <laughs> yep. You know, that's what you do anyway. And then you argue with a bunch of other really competent people about which paper is the best. So I, there was nothing bad about that committee. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I feel it's my job to help with conferences that support our field and where my students can go and get experience and learn how to pay back to the system themselves when they grow up. But I wouldn't say that I do as much service to the IEEE as some of my colleagues who are on various administrative committees and things like that, that take a huge amount of time. And I really am grateful to them for doing that. Oh, I wouldn't say that. You're on a ton of committees, especially for IMS 2022. I think you're, you're doing workshops, you're doing the, the TRPC and all kinds of stuff, right? Well, yeah, they volunteer you. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't mind. I think it's uh, we're excited that the conference will be in Denver and in person. And so we're very happy to, to do Excellent. that. Excellent. So it seems like less people are pursuing uh, careers in high frequency design, as we kind of mentioned earlier. Do you see that happening? And, you know, how do you think we can improve that and change the way that it's perceived? 
I think we need to advertise the salaries better because, you know, I talked to some colleagues at Lockheed and I learned, and I don't know if this is true or not, it's just what they told me, that for the same job, an RF engineer, for the same job coming out of school, will be paid 20% or 25% more than an aerospace engineer. Wow. And, you know, aerospace engineering is so popular with kids. Yeah. They don't. Our department is swamped with students in aerospace and mechanical. And computer science, of course, because everybody wants to program apps, right? What they forget about is somebody's going to got to build the phone that they're going to program their app on. And if they someone doesn't learn it, they'll be out of a programming <laughs> device, you know? But I think we don't do a very good job at telling young people how exciting it is. Part of the problem is that you get to RF in college. If you ever get to it, you get to it at the very end. Yeah, it's too late. Yeah. And it's too late to that time, you know? So there's a lot to be said about the old days when kids would tinker with radios and get ham licenses. And because you just learn and you see that it's cool and that it can be done. And even if you don't understand all of it, it seems to work. You know, so, you know, uh, there's a lot of competition in other fields, and I can't say that the others are not interesting as well, but I don't think we do a good job at explaining, you know, to young children. So I've tried, I've been trying, and we get a lot of people in our program, but that's only one place, right? Yeah, it needs to be a wider effort. Well, the other thing is you need support from your institution as well. You know, most places... Most universities don't even teach electromagnetics anymore. And I have to tell you that very sadly, despite all my efforts at my university now, a student can finish EE without ever taking electromagnetics. And that's a new thing as of like last year. Oh, wow. And hopefully we can change it. Um, I think it's kind of an error. <laughs> we'll have a talk with them. Well, the problem is that then kids who haven't taken any fields come and ask me if they can take the microwave lab and if I can help them get an internship. And sadly, the answer is no. You know, I'd love to, but I just can't. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, various double departments need to be made aware of the job opportunities in this field and not, you know, not hire only people in machine learning, but hire people who do the classical, much needed fields. Anyway, I don't know that I can be any wiser about that. I just think I'll keep doing what I'm doing in the hope that that makes a difference, you know. What are your uh, views or ideas on trying to encourage more women in the engineering field? Um, Not just RF, but it seems like uh, we also don't do a good job of that either. I don't know. If you look at chemical engineering and civil engineering, there are a lot of women, right? Chemical and biological. Electrical is by far the worst. In fact, we're worse than mechanical and then physics in the number of faculty, women faculty. I looked that up recently just to make an argument. (laughs) (laughs) Did you win? (laughs) Well, I mean, numbers are numbers, right? I would say I lost because we are the lowest. I don't know why, because it's such a fun job, you know? And I could get myself into a lot of trouble talking about this because, (laughs) you know, I've spent my whole career being gender blind because otherwise I would have been upset a lot and there's no point, you know? And I think that if you primarily judge quality and you're blind, otherwise you will get diversity, all kinds of diversity. 
for sure. You know, if you don't pay attention to whether someone came from a Stanford or MIT, but but you just look at what they know and what their raw capabilities are, and you're blind to everything else, you will definitely get diversity, including gender diversity, for sure. Because more than 50% of the world's population are women. So, I mean, just statistically, right? (laughs) But there is something that turns young women away from engineering. And I've noticed it happens in roughly seventh grade, I'd say. And it's a lot to do with peer pressure, but some of it I think has to do simply with the aging process, you know, that women and men age differently. And I have, you know, my husband is a physicist and we have three daughters. The eldest is the double E, has a PhD. Great. And so I did my share. (laughs) You contributed. (laughs) 66.6666% of my kids are women in STEM. Awesome. (laughs) One one is not. But um, yeah, so my way to contribute is just to give birth and make them go into stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the reason is that at the wrong time in their lives, there's the wrong kind of peer pressure. And that's a very difficult thing to fix, you know? Yeah. I can tell you a little story if you're interested. Sure. I brought the, a bunch of seventh graders from the local school to my lab. And set up some experiments, and they were fun experiments, you know, radar within waveguides, so they, they couldn't break it basically. And they got to rollerblade, don't tell anybody because it's <laughs> like slightly dangerous. They got to rollerblade, and we would measure their velocity, you know. And stuff ah. like that. So everybody got very excited about these. Experiments. And we measured, you know, we blew up stuff in the microwave oven, and it was fun. And suddenly I noticed three girls. Most kids were really interested, irrespective of gender. Three girls went to the side and started, you know, talking, talking and kind of making fun of the other girls and putting on their makeup. And so I called them and I said, excuse me, you're not participating. I want to know what your plan is in life. Are you independently wealthy? They looked at me. (laughs) (laughs) What does that even mean? Said, is your dad rich? They said, no. I said, is your plan to find someone rich? This they just were confused. I said, because if it's not, if you don't have another option and you want to make a decent living, maybe you don't want to be a waitress or a hairdresser or something. Maybe you want to learn something that someone will pay you to do, pay you a little more. So it's good to pay attention in case you happen to like it. And they just, you know, scowled at me, blah, blah. And I say, I see you're not interested. That's okay. I have a job for you. You see that big reflector. I have a cylindrical reflector for an antenna experiment for my class. Big one, you know. So see that shiny thing there? That's called a reflector. You don't need to know what it's called. I said, it's just a piece of metal. Here's some rags. And I want you to polish that really well until you can like put your makeup on and use it as a mirror because obviously <laughs> you don't care about anything else. So you may as well clean. <laughs> so they went with their little rags and started. <laughs> and one by one slowly came to the radar experiment. <laughs> You know, in the meantime, the boys were playing, you know, doing stuff with it and whatnot. And suddenly one of them calls and says, Professor, sorry, sorry, uh, this isn't working anymore. Something is wrong. This isn't working. And I look at it and there's this like giant reflection. You know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, why is the reflect looks like a short circuit? You know, so I started and there was a horn antenna with some waveguides components. And so I picked it up and I hear clonk, clonk, clonk. And so I just turned it around and all these screws come out. And I said, who put these screws in here? 
And this boy said, oh, I did. <laughs> I said, why did you put these screws in here? She said, well, you didn't tell us not to. <laughs> <laughs> it was an experiment. <laughs> yeah, and it was just such a different mentality. The young girls, you know, the young women would not have done that at all. They would have been worried that they, you know, damaged something. Yeah. So I do think that there's a difference and maybe it's from upbringing, but maybe it's just not. Maybe it's just the way kids grow up, the kids of different genders. But, you know, I got a lot of letters from kids I've done this with over over years. And many of the girls would tell me, one day I want to be an engineer like you. And that's, you know, that's really good. Yes, that's a good feeling. Yeah, I think you, you know, hit the nail on the head doing it early. You know, we really need to go into schools at the elementary and middle school age and, you know, show and these examples. Think, I almost think gender shouldn't be a topic of conversation. You know, you should, we should just behave like this is normal, which it is. Yep. And I don't need to justify myself. Right. I don't need to justify that I'm a woman doing RFY. Yep. Why, why is this even a topic? I know. I feel like we do harp on it a lot uh, at a lot of conferences well, I just think because the, it's a problem that people want to fix. Yeah. You know, I think people feel that it needs fixing. And so it's all it's all good intentions. But sometimes, you know, saying that you're different, somehow talking about it makes you different. And that's yeah. not the goal. You know, the goal is, you know, just show that you can do it. You know, just go do design something, measure something, and you'll be fine. <laughs> um, I, sounds like a good plan. Thank you so much, Zoya, for talking with me today about your career and experiences in the industry. You're truly an RF industry icon with all your advanced work in many areas of RF design and your great support for teaching students in the IEEE. Thanks to our audience for listening. You can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.